What's up, dudes and dudettes? Vibranters, it's Wednesday, and we're uh, running a little late. Had some really bizarre tech uh, misbehaving. I think that it saw the highly anti-Semitic title of the episode, and so, you know, I got hit with the sabotage, and they sent out the blast. You know, that what's funny is it was a microphone thing. The the guys here, they're pros and they helped me figure it out. But uh now my keyboard isn't working. So <laughs> I have no keyboard at the moment. That's okay. I guess I don't super need it. Uh, and I can maybe figure that out on the fly as we go. But oh I see. Dylan reported me to the ADL. Wow, that's exactly why. Thanks, buddy. Anyway, we're here to celebrate and to discuss the brand new book that our great buddy, Yorgo, Yorgo Mesa, George Mesa at Third Eye Edify has just released. He's also, I think, since he last came on, published a website for his work, and he's just been doing everything he can to bring elevate the level of his content and production to, you know, further and further heights. And I'm excited to have this conversation with them. Thanks for coming on, man. How you been? Thank you so much for this. I've been great. And it is just what you said. This has been quite a year of transitioning for me overall. Anyone that is kind of knowing where I'm at lately, I moved to Kentucky recently after living in New York for 40 years. And that was, you know, just a little over a half a year ago. And since then, there's been so many things that have been happening. It's been pretty amazing, as a matter of fact. You know, I started something I've always wanted to do. I started a bass player, a bass guitarist university. I've always wanted to do this with what I've been, because I've always been teaching private lessons. And on top of that, we've got this book and I've, have, I've, I've finally got the website up. You can almost click everything. It's almost done. Um, little merch shop, courtesy of your suggestion at Teespring. And I'm also going to be adding a section of news articles to the website where different contributors can put in, you know, sign of the time things and, you know, have some serious discussions with people. And I hope that that can kind of, again, elevate the situation. As opposed to just leaving a YouTube comment, you can actually go read an article or ask me if you'd like to make one. You know, I'm, I'm willing to hear anyone's voice. Okay, someone in the chat says, not, not hearing me. George. See that? Mm, yeah, I see that. You could be, a. I think maybe you could be brought up a, a bit. You just seem a little low. Yeah, yeah. What, what about this? Anyone any better? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do see that, though. You're right. You know, speaking of bass, I'm used to like a silky, smooth, good low end. Ah, right. <laughs> With oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Your book, though, it's an easy read. I went through it today, actually. Managed to get through all of it in one nice sitting. It was a nice day, warm, got some sun, all of that. So if I may, maybe I'll just introduce what it's about from my perspective, since I've read it now. Beautiful. <laughs> okay, so World War U. This is George's book about how the mind is the battlefield of the true battlefield of war. You know what I mean? It's the the German word for this is actually, and we don't have a word for it in English, but it's Weltanschauungskrieg, which means worldview war literally worldview war compounded into one word good old germans they they throw they make super words you know and we don't have words for that concept you know we have to describe it but essentially this is the battle for the mind and the 
bad. The real estate in your head being the most important place that any, you know, attention being your spirit is true. Truly, that's what it is. And so you go through kind of a, I would call it like a whirlwind tour of many, many different facets of this worldview warfare. And I hope to touch on some of those tonight. Cool. And what I like about it is it would make a, you know, what doesn't work for people when they're trying to communicate the the grand conspiracy and the days and all that is beating someone over the head with information. <laughs> like just fact smacking them doesn't often work, but there's a spirit to your book that that comes through. It's palpable. And as you touch on different parts of the grand conspiracy in it, it leaves the door open for somebody to have their curiosity sparked and go find out for themselves. And you leave them the breadcrumbs for that while making it a, a bite-sized easy read that will just get them there. So maybe holidays coming up, get this little pamphlet for a friend or a family member who got a bit shaken during cooties and is maybe ready to walk a little bit further down the garden path towards enlightenment. I like it though. And please, you know, tell, tell, tell us more about your book from your perspective. Oh, you know, I'm holding back like shortness of breath and tears because we're even discussing this right now. You know, I, I think that you really, what you said, you don't know. It's one of these things where you can, I read it. How many times did I read it? You know, still had a little error in there or two, but you can't, you can't hear your own voice properly. It just doesn't work when you read your, you know, even if I let it cool off for a month, I would go back and I already know what it says. And reading it, I can't tell if I'm delivering what I am expecting to deliver, right? The same thing occurs in music, too. I'll play something and listen back a year later and be like, is that, is that what I actually played? And, and with this, you're, what you're said about me trying to leave bite-sized crumbs in a short read that is a whirlwind tour simultaneously, that was 100% the goal of this book, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's got you know something of a look to the cover, it's got a title that's provocative and now suddenly very time sensitive since I started writing it as a matter of fact. And I, my goal was that I've read so many books. I, and me, at least these two other guys that I'm standing next to right now know exactly what I'm talking about. I've read so many books and a lot of your fans have too. And I found more often than not, I felt lucky enough to be able to even read it properly and interpret what was being said. I ended up buying books because I didn't know something in a book. And then I had to look at that little book and make sure that that paragraph made sense from the previous book because they, they're writing from this place of, if they didn't write it in Latin to hide things originally, I'm reading a translation, right? But they would, they would write it in a way that you had to know something just to be able to actually read it. I guess the idea of what a cult really means at the end of the day, right? Occult literature. But I, I was telling myself, okay, I know, I know how much I get out of these, but what if I never knew any of this stuff? This book would not only be useless to me, but it would actually seem like gibberish, right? So I tried to be as, as I often am, very just colloquial and, you know, energetic in a way where the topic is done, we're moving on now. But I did my best to kind of weave them all in and out so that your mind could go to different places and think to yourself, you know, these seem, these seem to be connected as a matter of fact. As people just like you on your show often figure it out, th there's always more than one thing connected. And I, I left the crumbs. 
I did my best to leave the crumbs so that way, if you read it, you wouldn't be dead bored because you've heard everything a million times. Or Slick, same for you. I had people like you in mind when I was writing it. I didn't want it to be just dead weight for you. But somebody who has almost no idea that even any of this kind of thinking existed, I wanted them to not have to be just overwhelmed and almost put it down right away because they don't even think they're able to approach the information. I wrote it like I was talking to somebody on an elevator, I guess, some random person I had just met, and I tried to say as much as I can before the elevator ride was over. Well, and, there's and, a thing know. about it that, like, what I enjoyed out of it is somebody that has a pretty well-rounded view on the various subjects that you offer breadcrumbs about is there's kind of a poetic or almost a musicality to your writing style where you're able to invoke feeling in a really, in a really well done way. And I think that's what I was trying to get at as I described it, that you're not there to beat them over the head with information, as I said, but you're there to invoke a certain feeling, remind them of a certain feeling of, you know, (laughs) Like that that one movie, uh, what is it, Anchor or something? Maybe it's not Anchor, but it's like I'm mad as hell, damn it! And I'm not, we're not gonna take it anymore. <laughs> it's that it's that feeling, and then the feeling of awe and wonder. Like, you know, what if these devices that we've given so much of our attention to, what if these entertainments that we've traded authentic human experiences for? What if they're actually not the most exciting element of life? What if life is what is most exciting and interesting? And you, yeah, you bring the spirit of that through. And I like it. I like it a lot. It's a nice, well-balanced, like, critique of society and uh, empowerment of what human potential is. And, you know, we we talk about worldview warfare at various points on this show. Weltanschauungskrieg. Really great word. Love, I love that word. And then I want to kick it over to you, Gabe. But you know, the biggest what if for me, and it's something that nobody can maybe even ever answer. So it's one of those philosophical grounds that is as personal to somebody as any other type of religious belief, right? That Because n- none of us here have died, right? I've never died. You've never died. Maybe even near-death experiences don't count to what I'm saying. Oh, network is the movie, Dylan. Thank you. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> but none of us have died. Even near-death experiences don't quite count because you're still here. And the question is, like, what if there is an element to murder and mayhem and all the big scary boogeymen of the of the world that were offered through media that requires consent on every level? What if that's the nature of the beast? Is you know, we see the consent farming that happens in various elements of, you know, you bring it up in the book a bunch of times. Like, how many contracts did you agree to today terms of terms and conditions or this year without even reading a word of it and a ton? But the question is, like, what if we're not actually in a world where some monster can jump out from around a corner and take you out? like mug you and shoot you and leave you bleeding in the alley unless you're a engaging in that type of aggressive behavior and infringing on other people's freedoms yourself and the karmic boomerang comes or B you believe that that's possible and you let it in by being afraid of it and you attract it. 
I personally think like it's not something you can prove to anybody, but this is the world I live in is that I'm actually not in danger of the capital T they coming and getting me because I tell the truth about this or that. I'm actually not vulnerable to psychic attack or black magic interference or this, that, or the other thing. (laughs) I'm actually not afraid at all of being murdered or silenced or what have you. I don't think that that's possible. And if, if, the big if I'm wrong about that, it's it, it's a, a belief that allows me to feel uh, able to do what's good and right without compromise to the best of my ability. So I think that's the biggest part of worldview warfare is to create myriads of boogeymen and things that stop you from feeling like you are capable of doing what you otherwise would naturally do, which is the human spirit left to its own, left on its own without interference, its tendency is to rise. Well said, man. I mean, you know, I want to echo what you said, Chance, what you left off there. Uh, I think one of the ultimate uh, uh, goals to all the rabbit warrens is to find out about the prospiracy and that the you know the real secret is that everything is working to our advantage, to uh, in our favor. Pronoia, you know, pronoia versus paranoia. Pro-noia. That's it. The sneaking suspicion Pro-noia. that the whole universe is conspiring in uh, your favor. Uh, human vibration. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah, human vibration. She's got the best pronoia worldview. Uh, which is, if you're going to go into warfare, that's a good one to uh, armor up with. Um, and George, about your book, man, uh, uh, a paradigm shift that I always forget about is that at some point there are people that are going to look up to us to be the history bringers, you know, and show uh, and tell the story of how we got here. And I think that's just uh, exactly what the book is all about, is like passing the torch to, uh, you know, the culture carriers who are going to keep our culture from turning into a cult. You know, that's going to be, I think of like, you know, Benjamin Franklin's like, yeah, you have freedom if you can maintain it. Well, the same (laughs) thing is with around conspiracy, conspiracy is we have a culture as long as it doesn't turn into a cult. You know, then it stays alive. We're always remain questioning. Uh, And it's just funny that that's a paradigm I'm always reminding myself of is that, you know, we're both student and uh, instructor on this path. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that, get my hands on the book. Well, what you said, I want to throw one more thing on top of that, Gabe, is how the big downside of conspiracy cult culture is the defeatism the victim consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a a good point of maybe why not to bludgeon someone over the head with all the nitty gritty of the details of the grand conspiracy in, in your book, as you do. Uh, I think that that actually helps (laughs) in some ways, because even the things we feel pretty sure about, we don't, we still don't fully know about a lot of that stuff. Some of it is still conjecture, even if we have strong reason to believe. No, you're right. And and this format is not a Facebook post. It's not a movie. So people can stop for a second if they need to and just kind of think about like, you know, have I ever actually thought of that before? 
you know, and I hope to evoke that out of a lot of people that maybe don't have this kind of material in front of them all the time, like somebody like me or you, where we're constantly researching and looking for more and more. But um, the, the, the other part of, I guess, what, what you were saying, Slick, is that uh, people, you know, it's easy to be in your own, in your own echo chamber, even if you don't have necessarily what qualifies as an echo chamber. If you, if you find yourself talking to yourself about the same thing over and over again, sometimes you don't move past it, even if you know it's wrong, and that's maybe part of the human condition, I guess. But the, the beating over the head makes it worse. Some people just turn it off immediately no matter what you're saying. So I, I was thinking that if I just keep moving from topic to topic in a certain way and, and also maybe every so often quote something that people are familiar with, Emperor's New Clothing, something Miles Davis said, something Johannes Kepler said, just to let people see that, you know, I'm not just talking out of my own brand new thoughts. You know, I'm trying to combine all the things that people usually overlook historically and sort of just put them in, in certain places for people to think about. And it made me think of another German word that's very similar, Gesamtkunstwerk, where the total artwork, as Wagner actually um, you know, coined the term, where something is developed from you and you alone. The total artwork comes just from you. And it's funny how that even needs to be a word. You know, you would think that that's not a concept that, that needs to be determined, but a lot of times people are collaborating and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's different when it does come from just one person. And because I am just personally speaking directly to the reader in a way where I make it obvious that I, I want them to know that I'm speaking to them, not just handing off some book by some, you know, I'm not even calling myself an author necessarily. I, I'm, I'm handing off this little tome for you to, to look at and see what you think about it. And, you know, you come to your own conclusions. I'm not trying to push conclusions either, which is why you were saying the breadcrumb thing. It makes perfect sense now that I'm hearing you say, you know, after having read it, it's it's so unique to hear this now. This is very it's very exciting for me, <laughs> actually. So, Gabriel, I think one of these days we need to have a full on episode, at least one, and uh, doing an analysis of different arms of philosophy that we think have any merit. You know, maybe <laughs> we don't need to cover ones that we uh, we dislike or disagree with, but German idealism and existential philosophy, both of those have a lot of really helpful nuggets and thinkers in there. <laughs> and I think when it, we're talking about worldview warfare, Welt, Weltanschauungskrieg, the concept of Dasein from existential philosophy comes into play and it's really interesting. So ultimately, this whole conversation is about how self your worldview shapes your self view and this is actually like the pretty much the basis of biofield tuning as well mm. uh, whether it's your self view being limited that cr creates a worse world for yourself or the way you expect life to be creates a worse self in you you know these things reflect back and forth and it's so Dasein is the it literally means there and being, da sign, da sign, being in the world is what the concept is, and it's basically the you. It, it's describing the unity of 
person and environment. And this is again, that's basically biofield, the biofield anatomy in a nutshell. So it Dasein has the three components. It's one of those holy trinities where you have, first of all, your own world, the Eigenwelt, which is the subjective experience, your inner self. And then you have the, you know, the image making faculty of your consciousness, your imagination, your thoughts, your senses, everything that's uniquely personal to you. Then you have the Umwelt, Umwelt, which do their W's as V's. Yeah, the Umwelt is the natural world of, you know, basically everything that exists, whether or not humans have something to do with it. So the Umwelt is huge. It's the world around. Mm. And then the Mitwelt is your social world where interpersonal relationships are, are, are happening. So when you look at worldview warfare, all three of these things get attacked. And if an attack is successful, you may be able to repel an attack on the Eigenwelt. You know, you may be able to, despite being told all your life, you're, you're, you're worthless or you're, you're never going to amount to anything. You might resist that, you know, give the middle finger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, etc. But if the attack succeeds on the Umwelt, where you now believe though, that, you know, the world is doomed and we're going to be destroyed in some extinction event. Uh, your long-term, uh, uh, your, your, your self-growth gets sabotaged because you don't, you're not able to see into a long enough term to grow to epic proportions because you think, well, what's the point? It's all falling apart. Or your midfelt is attacked and you see society is broken and you see all the people in it as, you know, monstrous. Well, then that limits your Eigenwelt, your own world, because you're going to be reluctant to interact in as helpful or as synergistic of ways with people. So, you know, I'm grossly simplifying all this, but to understand that we need a healthy, we need all three of these aspects of Dasein to be healthy and in a type of flow and exchange that works. So what... An example I want to pull out of your yeah. book. Oh, go ahead, man. Yeah, I want to riff on this. Uh, this idea of the design and just kind of getting your head around what Heidegger was on about and realizing that so many people have already written books about books, written about books, about written <laughs> about what this guy was on about. It's kind of you realize you get, you got to catch on to what so many people have already in, integrated but I think of this as like, this is a good metaphor for, uh, you know, for the worldview warfare. I believed most of my life that chess was the most complicated, strategically advanced system of strategics. That was kind of, I, I repeated myself there. Uh, but somebody told me, no, checkers is more strategically complicated and i was like i just can't believe that because all the pieces move the same they all adhere to the same rules and with chess you have these different tactical uh uh paradigms well it turns out they they proved me wrong when they told me that the way that you're supposed to play checkers originally is with if uh the person exposes themselves to a jump 
you are compelled to jump them. And with that one rule, the compulsory jump, they can lure you into multiple jump uh, countermeasures. And so by doing that, that one little nuance to checkers makes it way more strategically advanced than chess because they can uh, manipulate you that much more. And so worldview warfare is kind of the same way. We realize that, oh, we were coming at this with like just a political map with maybe just the roads uh, on, the, on the piece of paper. And this is how we're going to strategize and have our worldview. But then you find out that these Dasein motherfuckers who read Heidegger, <laughs> they have topographic maps. They can actually see the hills. They can see the valleys. They have another dimension of perception when they come at political topics uh, and philosophy. Is that a good, is that a good metaphor? Yeah, dude. And uh, it's actually a, a really good metaphor because how much of how, how many aspects of society are set up where the, the checkers man is put in front of you and it's like, okay, jump <laughs> because the entire system of master and slave requires that every master is a slave to something above them and every slave is a master to something below them. So I think that that checkers metaphor is actually really apt because there, there's something that occurs in humanity in victim consciousness where the victim becomes the perpetrator. And if you've felt like you've, and you've been told, especially that you've been told that the reason why you're down is because there's a big ass boot on your neck. If you've been told that over and over again, then when you see the ant below your feet, you know, you're that much more likely to stomp it. So that's uh the checkers metaphor actually is pretty apt. Yeah. I th I think so, man. Oh yeah. I agree, you know. And I I actually was thinking about what you said much earlier with the cult and culture thing. And that's uh, it was it really relates to like the very first one of the very first things I mentioned is that I was a kid in a theater and you know, we just find out that the bad guy is actually a real person with real feelings and stuff and then they kill him and everyone's clapping together. You know, everyone just can't wait for this guy to die and we're applauding that death, you know? And that's how, how many times has that happened in a theater in the 80s and 90s? I can't even say it. And that's, that could easily lead up to who knows what, public executions, other kinds of things. It's so easy to get an entire culture to become a, a cult that's bloodthirsty and ready to kill whoever, whoever, whatever talking head they tell you deserves to die. Yeah, and cult is, you know, philologically, cult is cold. <laughs> you know, it becomes a very cold, clinical, sterile thing when there's no more living aspect to your philosophy and it's just a received authoritarian thing. Yeah, you're right, man. You're right. Hey, that's a nice mug you got there. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Screen. So uh, there's a part in your book where you bring up dinosaurs mm. and th this is something that I don't have a lot of personal background studying, like the, the dinosaurs are a fraud. Dinosaurs are fake and gay, but it just sounds correct. <laughs> you know, like right. when everything else is, ends up being opposite day that you look into from what you were taught as a kid, then dinosaurs being fake and gay for sure. And I, so you brought up like when you're a kid and you 
seeing the movie and the bad guy about to get executed and everyone's cheering for and bloodthirsty. When I was a kid, the thing that really worked on me was the dinosaur extinction meteor. Although it didn't fully work on me. So like when I, mm. I was like four years old, five years old, I saw Jurassic Park uh, like out of, you know, from behind the couch, walked, like peeking. I wasn't <laughs> supposed to be in the room. And I, I remember this to this day and being like legit scared of those dinosaurs. So my solution to the fear of what I was being shown on Jurassic Park as like a four-year-old was to then find out everything I could about dinosaurs and whether or not I needed to be afraid of them. So I ended up, I didn't go super far into it. Like I didn't learn all the dinosaur names and their qualities and attributes because I found out and I would go around telling everybody that the dinosaurs were wiped out by a meteor. So they're not around anymore, but it's just a theory though. That's what my four-year-old self would say. So I knew it was just a theory even then, (laughs) but my point being, uh, you know, you hint at this, you, you know, you say, I learned about the eschatological nature of their extinction eschatology uh, great you, you use a lot of great 50 cent words in the book some <laughs> of them i even had to like check the definition on and make sure i knew what it was cool. but the the eschatology of the extinction event that is the dinosaurs is that you humans are no better than these dinosaurs they ruled the earth they were huge they were unstoppable they were here for a really long time and now they ain't bitch they gone <laughs> and that's what's coming for you that's basically the eschatology of dinosaurs. Am I wrong? I think it's exactly right. Yeah. Can and you can you expand on like the 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 conspiracy aspect? Do you have any d- details yes. about oh. like what makes dinosaurs yes. so bunk in, in terms of specific <laughs> refutations? Because I'm actually curious. Well, you know, one thing that really struck me recently is that they suddenly all have feathers. You know, they're always trying to get this bird brain idea going with them, and I thought that was an interesting change of pace, even though. They've never had a like a skin sample, as far as I know. I'm not sure how much a bone can tell you about skins having feathers and hairs and stuff. But I, I can sum it up very simply, I think, without even getting into a bunch of details. Is that it's twofold. First of all, it's everywhere, especially for children, right? They're more, they're more focused on telling you how a rocket ship can come back into orbit and they're more focused on telling you all they can about dinosaurs than gardening or anything important for years, you know, for years and years as a young child in the Department of Education's wonderful little program they have for you. But this is what ends up happening. Suddenly, your kid's first four-syllable word is triceratops, and they, they got you. And then Bill Nye says, what kid doesn't love dinosaurs? Like, of course, they all love dinosaurs. It's everything that you've ever seen. There's so many different series. They're really hyping it up lately, too, especially on television and all these other, you know, there's dinosaur stuff all over the place again. And Michael Crichton writing Jurassic Park, I think, might have been the impetus for it. It kind of came back because he's always ahead of the curve with what he writes, and then the movies come out. But it, it's just like the outer space propaganda. I don't think it falls into a different category whatsoever. They push it and they push it. They step off for a little bit. And if things start getting questioned in any way, suddenly there's 10 new dinosaur movies. There's plenty for kids to choose from. I don't think there's a kid's program I can find that doesn't have an image of Saturn and a rocket ship and a dinosaur. I, I can't even find one because I got a two-year-old and a three-year-old. 
them trying to like avoid all of that stuff. It's everywhere. It's hard to avoid, but they they get you, and they and these kids can actually say the names of these complicated names of dinosaurs. They just make sure you know it, just like the tobacco signs are at eye level or used to be. It's the same exact thing. You know, they make sure that you know it. Why is that the focus of the education? I, I learned so much about dinosaurs for years, and not on my own either, on my own too, but school was just pumping it on me. It, it, it was, it's crazy, you know? It's, it's crazy. It's everywhere. And yeah, they want you to think that you're just as weak and that they could even come back. Maybe we're going to lose the, the battle on, on this you know, planet. I use the word lightly. And then the dinosaurs will come back because we're just so weak. We need like a, a better, you know, bigger, better, faster, more species. Let's just take a look at the Are guy who uh, discovered dinosaurs, <laughs> coined the term. I mean... <laughs> What is this, 1850 on the dot, probably, like everything else? I think this is probably like 1890, you know, end of his life. But he looks like a supervillain of some kind, you know? Like, don't judge a book by a cover, sure, but but maybe. Was that a tie turned into a bow tie? I've never seen that before. I've never seen that. I don't know a lot about him, but... uh, Oh, Richard Owen, yep. Oh, he he is up no good at all. Okay, you see it too? It's just see it in the eyes especially the old by the time he's old i've got some notes from a previous episode i'll try to find that too because nice man man. this yeah it's it's all around the same time you know it's always in that 1850s region yeah i gotta point out uh dinosaurs is twilight language for don't know source and that's very interesting as the battle between science and religion has waged all through the, the through the eons. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. Super chat Gabe uh, on cash app dollar sign slick dissident. This is, this man should be paid for those ideas. Don't know source. That's Seriously. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just part of the whole like meaninglessness of existence spell that is outer space. You know, dinosaurs are definitely part of that. Ah. And what is intriguing to me, if you want to give us more examples about that, about why to be skeptical of it, because, you know, it's the kind of thing that I might fire off at a family gathering when somehow (laughs) dinosaurs come up and I'm just like fake and gay. And they're just like, you don't believe in anything, do you? (laughs) As if like my world is somehow less by being skeptical of everything we're told. But, you know, I usually just at this point, I'm able to just be like, yeah, but how many of the things that you were shocked and appalled at my skepticism later? You're like, yeah, I think you might be right about that. So you give it time. You'll come around. Right. (laughs) Uh And I think that that's the other thing about this. uh, Oh, go ahead, Gabe. We're you're on a bit of a delay, so sometimes we get a little off off uh, kilter. Sorry, I'll start doing a little Gabe dance so you know <laughs> that I'm coming in hot. <laughs> um, uh, I I love to point out how while we deny the dinosaur thing, we can always bring it to the placenta. It always comes back to placenta, and that's because. The theory of evolution is nothing more than a hyperbolic derivative 
of the embryo in the zygote and coming into this into the into this world and so the whole story about like yeah you used to be a slime mold and then a, a frog jacked off and the sun was just right and now you're human all of that is actually just what happened in mama in a beautiful way more recently way more recently even so thereby uh that much more important and more sacred um and impact are you calling my father a frog present <laughs> <laughs> definitely a symbol of fertility for, for sure so yeah i just love that also that like while we deny dinosaurs we're embracing the sacred and the immediate and bringing it even more to the uh, of what we do have in common not some monkey story from millennia back right and you know another thing that in this i guess in the style of my book not hitting someone over the head but giving them crumbs is that don't you know if you're talking about dinosaurs with someone who's not willing to even hear the conversation because you're some crazy insane person family member or not then at least bring it to bring it to their level as far as oil is concerned and fossil fuel and they're saying that you know fossils have been discovered this deep and we found oil this deep and the, the the right there there's a complete disconnect with if oil is developed from you know decayed fossils then the the level of ground underneath you should find should go as far back as whenever the dinosaurs are supposed to be buried under the crust like they said that they are and those numbers don't check out whatsoever compared to how far we can even dig to begin with and it's their own numbers as usual you know messing with you i have it somewhere i just can't find the exact um can't find the exact numbers but that's i think that's a great way for, to just spark something in them and say you know how far down do you think fossils go that they've discovered and now how far have we found oil and they're saying that it's developed from fossils meanwhile people are apparently making oil pretty easily without with like decayed wood or something right so that's or pressurized wood so it's that 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 might be a nice conversation starter and museums don't necessarily admit that those are the bones they do say that they're facsimiles that they you know they say they're storing the bones because we would never put them on display i guess you know but <laughs> doing one a big old tyrannosaurus or stegosaurus toppling on someone if that's the case but they also just like with you know nasa saying their images aren't real um the museums are admitting that these are not you're not looking at a dinosaur fossil right now. We have created this for your enjoyment, in other words. Just in case the conversation needs to go there, you know? It's all an entertainment. It's all entertainment. entertainment. Yep. Oh, yeah. There's so many elements to this to unpack, potentially. But one of the things is how the dinosaurs are fossil fuels. And that's where oil comes from. It's such like a dead another dead and sterile type of paradigm that, oh yeah, the thing that fuels our society is death <laughs> and, and it's running out. So you're going to die too. Whereas <laughs> like for all we know, the oil is like blood, blood of the earth. The earth is not just an inert lifeless rock on which somehow magically the right, <laughs> chemicals came together and got struck by lightning and the tornado went through a junkyard and an airplane was somehow left sitting there after the whirlwind passed. 
Like that's basically evolution. <laughs> that's the theory yeah. of evolution. Tornado through a junkyard and you got an airplane <laughs> at the end. Right. <laughs> and so I think that it's more likely that the oil is some kind of a life inner life force circulator circulator of the plane that we live on itself. You know, I've heard crazy un unfounded or unprovable theories about that. And anyway, Maybe we could segue to talking about, you know, speaking of terrible lizards, I know there was another thing that piqued my interest. You talked about in the book a little bit, and that was the social engineering of Godzilla, mm. the the Godzilla movies. That was something I was never into before as a kid. But let's can we go there? I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. I would just want you to let it rip, dude. Oh shit! <laughs> you know I actually was just interviewed by good old crow triple seven i said i've got a godzilla episode for you what do you say and we just did that so i'm actually pretty fresh on the info but i would have been anyway sweet but i but you'll they'll hear it here first though oh they'll hear it here first man okay good (laughs) because i'm a a super godzilla nerd i don't need notes in front of me for this stuff man you know i've been i've watched many of these movies well over 200 times and not to show off it's just I lived in front of a TV for a long time, which is part of the reason I felt like I needed to write this book, by the way, because I was supposed to become some cubicle slave and it didn't happen, thankfully. But the the series starts in 1954, 10 years after the end of World War II, right? And suddenly we were like back to having this cinematic handshake between us and, and Japan, even though what happened, you know, what they say happened. And the the propaganda started right from the start, really. I mean, right there you have the nuclear weapons thing and you've got, he's basically a dinosaur, lizard, whatever you want to call it. So there's those two things right there. There's actually images of how the earth evolved and Big Bang is discussed in the first movie. And for several of the earlier movies, they're whipping out little kids books of, to show pictures of dinosaurs. It's always like a, a a kid's book, you know? And the series carries on for its first iteration of movies until 1975. And within these about 20 or so movies, there is an entire movie based on a secret tropical location where the UN is conducting weather manipulation experiments in order to, you know, to save humanity from starving, of course, because the population is growing so big and they want to make sure that tundras and deserts can be converted into livable places so that way humans can actually survive and keep going because we're doomed in 30 years, you know, and that was 1968, 69. So, Right there is already just red flag city, you know. Um, JFK gets assassinated sixty three next year. Movie starts with an assassination on a princess. Up until the moon landing, sixty five, sixty seven, sixty eight. These movies had tons of miniatures of outer space, the Earth spinning, the moon. People go to a special planet that's hiding behind the sun, and they plant a wonderful trifecta flag of the United States flag, Japanese flag, UN flag. Boom, right on this planet. We were there first. It's all there. And that's, you know, it's tip of the iceberg. But one thing that is really interesting, as a matter of fact, because first of all, the first movie, it's very good and quite an emotional thing. I think that it's worth watching. It's not some, you know, old Eastern cinema that doesn't have the right beat for a Western audience. It's very watchable. The acting's actually pretty decent. And it came from the right place, no matter who was pulling the strings. But there's a guy with an eye patch as one of the main characters. And several times throughout the series, 
he has a right eye patch, but Godzilla's left eye gets hit a lot, and we get this exact shot. And the camera zooms in, and it looks exactly the same. Happens many times throughout the series. There's a lot of single eye symbolism, with which we could go into that forever, but it's funny that he does it. You wouldn't expect it. With the big G, and just boom, just like that. And there's, there's a lot more. There's, there's all these little things all over the place, but I think overall, it kind of started... Think about how popular Japanese culture is. Let's just say Japanese entertainment to be safe because I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a total expert on that stuff. But manga and anime are clearly thriving quite well over here. Everyone's, you're not cool if you're into it kind of thing, right? And Godzilla really, I think, genuinely started that in this post-war entertainment world that we have. So I, it was placed there for a reason. The third movie was King Kong versus Godzilla. In RKO Studios, whose symbol is a bell tower on top of a spinning planet, they agreed to give King Kong's license over to Godzilla, and that was their third movie. Transition out of black and white, suddenly make the monsters look really silly, and now it's appealing to kids forever. Even though there's lots of like violence in these movies, and the, the, the themes are often quite adult overall, you know, the human action, but the kids get all, all that they want too, right? And... It, it's been marketed towards children no matter what the whole time, whether it's a pretty sinister movie or whether Godzilla's good or bad. It, it's the nature of, you know, catching you young. It just is. I, it fucking caught me young. I don't regret it or anything because I can talk about it now. Just like Chance, the very first time you ever had me on like two and a half years ago, talking about video games. Freaking video game nerd, man. I'm not going to deny it. But I don't make that kind of time anymore. I would never. You know, and I got to make sure that People don't lose as much time as I did. I'm, I'm catching up now. I've been playing catch-up for quite a while now, realizing that I did spend that much time on it. You know, I'm just lucky I cultivated a career as a musician too at the same time. But I didn't sleep a lot, that's for sure. It, it's, a, it's a crazy thing, man. The series really... And I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg, man. It touches on all of the hot points that you'd want to discuss as predictive programming and propaganda. It touches all the hot points. It's 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 pretty nuts, man. I, it's, and I got to watch a lot of them recently, so I'm really like seeing it again. I'm like, holy shit, man! They're they're pushing it. So I'm gonna denerd for a moment and just kind of decompress, and I'm gonna leave it there for a minute. Nice, man. That's awesome. I'm so excited about the crow episode. That's gonna be hot fire. Yeah, it was long. It was um, a long one. <laughs> I I don't know if you guys touched on it. Oh, cool. Well, um, so the Godzilla thing has a fascinating correspondence to the day of 9-11 when George Bush is sitting there for, for dragging time mm -hmm. for an hour. Story hour. Drag time story hour. And on his book is a dragon. There's literally a dinosaur a lizard, a Godzilla. The, 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 uh, I think of these things, I think they're actually like titanic lies that they build entire industries upon. Yep. And then they can flash them around in, in mockery, really. But yeah, the book that he's actually reading to those kids has, it's, uh, the publisher is Rainbow Publishing with the draft. Dragon, 
it's got mushrooms like psychedelic mushrooms and elves <laughs> so there's the santa claus aspect and, and the elves are catching butterflies well butterfly is the symbol of the psyche you know and uh and he's up there sitting in front of an uninfringed flag with a basket on the on the shelf uh and you get the high priestess he's in the high priestess position with the book in the lap um mm. So yeah, there's a dinosaur Godzilla weave around 9/11. Yeah, and there, there's a very strong connection in several ways to 9/11 as well. Um, let's make this one obvious. The after 9/11, they stopped at this point. You know, Sci-Fi Channel was pretty fresh, and a few other networks like USA had always shown the Godzilla movies, especially Saturday mornings. But they stopped showing these movies after 9/11 for a while. Because there's so many images of buildings crumbling down, right? Not disintegrating completely into dust, but just crumbling down. And um, one of the covers, most of these movies have many movie posters, and I have them most on VHS. A lot of them, the cover would change over the course of half a year, the brand new cover, brand new cover. One of the movies that came out, in the last one in 75 of that era, was him on top of one of the Twin Towers, and the other monster on top of another Twin Tower. It has nothing to do with the movie. Nothing takes place in America whatsoever. So that was pretty weird. And then they decided to come back in 1984 and start over again. So that was a fairly interesting year to you know restart the series. It's, uh, it's, it goes on. The list goes on, man. You know, one other thing, now that you mentioned that the word Godzilla, it is worth mentioning that his name is Gojira, right? It's not Godzilla. That's just what we know him as in the West. They changed his name to Godzilla. And one of the movies is called Son of Godzilla. So when you start searching for that, you get Son of God, right? And guess who the parent of this is? We don't know. There's an egg, and assumedly male, we never see genitals. Godzilla comes out, and he's the father of this baby. As if there's never like two of them. There's never a mother. You know, maybe it's promoting that idea, the 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 Bill Gates male baby bump thing. Who knows? There's just there's too much. We could talk about this for twenty hours straight. Oh, I think that I think Gojira is basically Brahma or Kronos laying the Orphic egg. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> in in Hindi, Zilla is a town or a district like the official boundaries of an area based on who governs it or administers it. Wow. So when you say Godzilla, it's like basically like the jurisdiction of God in a sense. And also now we have a God-sized lizard. So there's the reptilian overlord aspect to this. I think it's a uh, just a, a silly pop culture Gnosticism type allegory. When I say pop cult, maybe I should say like darker inverted Gnosticism, you know, that the thing that is behind the scenes of whatever types of cults or societies run Hollywood. Uh, and I say whatever type, but essentially, you know, the ones, the the world is broken, Tikhan Olam, the God is dead or God is deranged and we have to fix God, all of that type of idea that is... I think that that's the thing is basically selling you the idea in every which way possible that you're meaningless and the thing that the, the true power of this existence or universe might just squash you out, you know, like a 
again, like an an ant being stomped on by a boot at any moment, you know, whether it's a natural disaster, tidal wave, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe that the seeding of these ideas that basically you can just be annihilated and everything, you know, crushed in to dust by seemingly random chance or by acts of God. I mean, acts of God, that, that has a lot of legal, a lot of legal significance, that idea, an act of God. (laughs) The thing is not insurable necessarily. And anyway, once you have been seated, the idea that random chaos can just annihilate you, then the next step in the worldview warfare is, and there's a capital T they, who is us, and we actually harnessed these forces and we can do it on command. We can press the button. We got the, because, you know, the threat of nukes is below the, not even very veiled with Godzilla, of course. Right. <laughs> weather control, you brought up weather control. That's part of it. And I, I don't necessarily believe that any of that is possible at all. But I do think that if there was a route to that type of thing being possible, it's through a more existential philosophy rather than a technological capacity. And that just like shaman can make the weather change. What if a whole bunch of people believe the imminent destruction? Is there a critical mass that occurs where enough people believe in imminent destruction and thus it it appears it occurs. And I think it's an old game. I think it's a really old game. How many, like generations and thousands and thousands of years have we been warned of the deluge and that it's a cycle and like, you know, the whole thing is going to be destroyed and then regenerated. What if there's some element of summoning that through enough collective belief? I think all of that is in the mix. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm thinking of the word. I'm thinking of the word uh, psychic meteorology psychic meteorology and its harvest potential on wall street you know and there's all kinds of different drama uh, dramatic variations of what they can do uh, with that system they have in place and it's not just wall street either you know they they seed ideas well in advance I love how the word fossil fuel, by the way, has the word self in the middle. (laughs) Faux, self, yule. (laughs) I I love finding those little hidden center words when you take out the implied space in between. Wow. Uh, Chance, you mentioned act of God. There is something really profound with around... Like, I struggle myself with, like, okay, if I believe that in climate change or if I believe in weather manipulation, I'm walking on this thin line between who gets the credit, who am I giving credit to for an act of God? Do I believe that it's just the weather, that God creates the weather, therefore God gets the credit for when the weather goes a certain way? Hmm. Or... Am I giving somebody else credit for the acts of God? And are is that a potential hijack point psychically? Yes. And I'm not, you're, go, that, I'm you're not getting it. That's, 
No, no, I think that there's a there's a huge there's yes. a huge gravy portal you're opening right here, <laughs> and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get at is that it's like the the biggest part of the conspiracy isn't what the they can do; it's in convincing us that they can do stuff. <laughs> And that's, I think, the real the real trick. And that's where you're basically demonstrating how existential philosophy, the topology of of the conspiracy, <laughs> the conspiracy is not about what is actually being done in dark robes and shady grottos and all of that. Yeah, maybe that stuff occurs here and there, but it's. It's not that well organized. The part that's well organized is that your inner world and what you believe affects the outer world and what happens there. You know, like not just the, it's the, your Eigenwelt influences your Midwelt and your Umwelt. The world around you, the society world, the nature world, your inner world, they're all intrinsically linked. So, that's what we started talking about, and hopefully we're making a good case for it. Why, at the at the end of the day, you know why why I like George's book in a lot of senses is that you're not trying to convince them of any kind of grand architecture of conspiracy so much, and instead, like you go figure it out for yourself what you think it means. But we're not here to like scare you into believing in an all powerful them. <laughs> I like that. I think that that's important. And yeah. Oh, I, you should respond to that, but I really okay. also want to get into the, uh, okay, I'll save it. I, I won't forget. Okay. No, no, I, it's not, you know, I was just going to say that I don't know if my goal was met and that is one of the goals I had. So it means a lot to hear the feedback, man. So, one of the things that I didn't know about that I that was a fact I learned in your book that was uh, quite amazing was that the it's illegal to have a patent on a perpetual motion machine. You're not allowed to have a perpetual motion machine patented. And you brought up this example of Rube Goldberg. If anyone's ever heard of the Rube Goldberg machine, it, he is a cartoonist that was famous for conceiving of these elaborate contraptions. So if you've ever seen like in a movie or a cartoon where someone kicks off a domino and the dominoes fall and then they land on uh, something that sparks a lighter and then that, uh, the, you know, the fuse starts to go and then there's a little tiny explosion and then that pops a balloon and then that the thing that the balloon was holding up drops and it lands on a, a lever and that thing boing bounces another thing that flies through the air and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on, right? That's the Rube Goldberg machine, like, essentially. It's like Goonies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, that, that I haven't actually seen the Goonies. Admitting, but it's in the Goonies. That's the thing in the Goonies. It's like the board game mousetrap. If anyone knows that. So, yeah, that's exactly what it's like, mousetrap. So, apparently, this guy Rube Goldberg actually once made a cartoon called Something for Nothing. It's like a, it's a film, short film, if you will, but like one of those old school propaganda films. This is from 1940 where he does his drawing of a, a Rube Goldberg style to show you why there's, 
you can't have a perpetual motion machine and why you have to have gas or fossil fuels to for an engine to work. But the point being, we take it for granted that cars have to work the way they do, that batteries as we use them today have to work the way they do. But there is actually a, a long and concerted effort to convince the public that things like anything that you would conceive of as a perpetual motion machine where something just continually operates in a type of frictionless or low friction balance where it feeds into itself, positive feedback loops. There was a long-term effort to convince people that that was impossible and to completely wipe that concept from people's consciousness so that they would just continue to believe in consumable, degradable, replaceable, planned obsolescence type of technology in society. And all you got to do is look at, as you point out so wisely in the book, that whether you're a glober or a flatter, something is moving continually. <laughs> it does not stop. <laughs> and, you know, there's older, older, simpler technologies like just the water wheel in the river that is continually turning. Like there are ways that we can generate without the type of disintegration built in that we're used to the kind of wear and tear that we're used to. So that's another big one, a spell that you break in the book that I really appreciate because if we can't conceive that that's possible, that there is such a thing as technology or aspect things that already exist in nature that can perpetually operate without needing to be replaced or fixed all that much or without needing to consume something in a finite supply, well, you have to be able to imagine something for it to be possible or for it to exist in your universe. You know, that's part of the attack on the Eigenwelt is if you can convince people that something is impossible or doesn't exist, they won't look for it in the world and they won't even notice it when it's right in front of their eyes, in which case it actually is every night that they look up. That's exactly right. And the worst part of that in the you know, World War U sense is that let's just say we're all stupid idiots and we're bothering to make one of these things. Let us. Why is it actually off the table? You know what I mean? It's off the table. You just don't even bother. You're an idiot. And that's that's leads to exactly what you said. Oh, we need to expand on this more. So, yeah, that patent is this probably not allowed. Uh, hails back to the uh, the room. Right. This is this goes back to the war on the machinists, you know, mm. and like uh, making it so that there's less and less uh, variation in mechanical uh, expressions. Uh, and then they have a couple wars. Uh, you know, this is part of why they made uh, illegal. Uh, they made alcohol the illegal for so long. I think it was 33 years. I had 22. It was some magical Masonic number. Mm, um, right. But while they were making uh you know uh turning your own distillery into fuel for yourself while they were making that illegal they were also streamlining the mechanics for how uh machines would work uh and then um when we when they made alcohol legal again 
they had streamlined all of patents uh, so that you could only go through Rockefeller mainstream pipelines, you know. Otherwise, we could all be uh, brewing our own medicine and our own uh, gasoline fuel, which you can actually still do. You can actually supplement uh, alcohol in your in your car for certain cars. This is not medical advice, people, but for certain vehicles <laughs> with certain stipulations, you can make stuff out of the backyard uh, and do, do like 50-50. You can cut your own fuel if you're into it. Uh, but that used to be fully possible, and now it's less and less possible. This comment sums it up. Dylan, always bringing it. <laughs> the same people who claim perpetual motion is impossible due to a violation of the second law of thermodynamics will claim a vacuum of space is next to a pressurized system that we live in without a barrier. <laughs> and they can't even determine the height of that barrier. And suddenly the moon is in our atmosphere, right? <laughs> Yeah, good, good one, Dylan. For real. <laughs> but in the first place, too, the whole thing that a perpetual motion machine can't exist because it's a violation of the laws of thermodynamics is kind of a straw man in the first place because, like, it's a way of discrediting the entire idea of some kind of efficient feedback loop type of energy or work capacity, right? I mean... Obviously, nobody's going to imagine that has any sort of common sense or reason that you could build a machine that will never, ever, ever break down no matter what, and nothing about it would decay with time, right? But that's basically the straw man that they're giving. They're, they're setting up the straw man that like, oh, well, you can't make something that just turns itself on and kicks itself off and continues working forever without any input or maintenance. So they're building a straw man and attacking that. But, it, you know, the reality is maybe you got to put an initial push of energy in or some kind of kickstart, right? And maybe you got to do repairs and maintenance at some point. Sure. All of that is we're not like crazy people, we, <laughs> but that's that's the way that the argument is is given. And that's basically across the board uh, part of worldview world warfare is people's lack of understanding of logical fallacies and how those that lack of understanding is weaponized against them so that they don't even realize when they're being persuaded by say a straw man argument of which that's probably the most common one <laughs> that you see you know in media yeah well said man and um we're not the ones saying anything 100%. We're usually the ones saying, well, there's this side and this side, and let's see what works. we got to try it. We're usually the ones saying that. It's unfortunate that we're so bastardized as a result, you know? <laughs> yeah, and the same time that they things. were annihil like strawmanning the idea of perpetual motion and efficient energy was the same time that they were, to, to Gabe's point, uh, outlawing doing prohibition on alcohol for the pretense of the public good when in reality it was to prevent this way more effective and efficient fuel source from becoming widely adopted to the point where it couldn't be rooted out. That's what I think. Oh, some good people in the chat. I just want to say hi to Michelle's healing home. Good to see you. 
Gnostic Chef is saying hi in here. Moonbuggy, MS, Robert, Diogo, Carrie, some real legends in the chat. Rachel, thank you for the super chat earlier. Marty Leeds over at Gnostic Academy gave a nice super chat. Polymath thing in the yes. chat. Priscilla, lots of good people here. If I didn't say hi to you, we love you. Thank you for being here. It's really nice. It's fun to be hanging out. I appreciate you guys being part of it. Okay. Looking at my notes from your book. You know, uh, I got a kind of a fun weave. How many pages was the book, George? I originally edited it to be like just over 70, and now it's like just under 60-ish readable oh, am I, you know, am reading I glitched? pages. You're good, Gabe. You're just a little delayed. Okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Nice. Yes, uh, it's just uh, just under. Well, 60. I love that uh, you. Uh, okay, and so it, so it is. It's kind of like a a, a starter kit for uh, for people who might be in the uh, new to the terrain. Would you say? Yeah, yeah. It it, it eats like one of those manly pee hole pants. That's great. Uh, that'll things. be good for uh, get, for gift giving. Ah, well. I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> but that was the point. You know, if this book was 200 pages, with the way I'm being very quick about everything, I wasn't sure if that should be the first thing. I, I don't know. It was hard to say where the decision came from, you know. But it feels like I said what I wanted to say at least this time around in, the, in this method. Yeah, and I think it, the the best you part know, is to uh, give you a taste for writing, and uh, you'll probably do more if I'm not mistaken. Definitely okay. made me as I was reading it, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do one. <laughs> yeah, I got know. notebooks full of, you know, a good start that I could probably just cobble together into something. Eventually, though, we're gonna do it. Nice man. Yeah, we gotta figure out too, Gabe, why there's a delay with your laptop that isn't yeah. there with other devices. I'm sure there's a way to figure it out. Is are you hardwired in, or are you on a Wi-Fi? I'm Wi-Fi'd from here, but that's probably what it is. Okay, we we'll won't get tech closer talk. to the uh, to the home to the home signal. Yeah, one of those things, or a oh, signal something yeah, George, we can uh, we can get you I, some tech though. We'll we'll get you we'll get you this sorted. Let's make sure we talk about it. All right. That sounds good, buddy. That sounds awesome. Yeah, George, very inspiring for me as well to get my to get my notes in order. And, you know, that's like a life goal is to get on that book, man. You know, it's not going to write his damn self. So, yeah, buddy, very, very encouraging. That's that's cool, man. You know, because this is this is um, I've always wanted to anyway, but since I've done so many you know, video episodes now. I started the book before the show ever started, by the way. And then it took a, a hiatus for more reasons than one. And now it's, I tried not to actually pull too much from any episode notes. I just, this is what just, I, every time I sat down, I just let it go and then kind of just picked and choose what I think would belong and, and should stay. 
you know. So I, I tried to make sure I didn't treat it like an episode or I didn't treat it like anything else. I wanted it to be its own thing, you know, and potentially introduce people to this, you know, world of mine, if you want to call it that. Mm, comfortable silence. <laughs> mm, yes, well, you know, um, the other part of it is that um, I, you know, I tried to, this is obviously a tough thing overall for anybody, no matter what, I tried to read it as if I wasn't me and try to see, like, would this piss me off if I had no idea about this crap? Would it, would it, I wanted to make sure I didn't have anyone just close the book in absolute frustration if they were, you know, whatever you want to call a normie or whatever. I wanted to make sure I didn't want to push anyone in that direction. So I did soft landings on a lot of things. I pushed them till the end if I had to. You know what I mean? There's something, something along those lines was the method. There is another part of, there's a couple more things I liked a lot that were, felt like a little wanting more was yeah, this quote uh, from wag. Oh, Gabe, you got something. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sam Tripoli, he, he has this term he calls the, the rule of the Ronin. Have you heard Sam Tripoli's rule of the Ronin? No, actually. It's, it's basically that you have to make sure the person wants to know the thing that you want to tell them. It's like you have to coax the invitation out of them to get their permission. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you can generally sense when a person isn't ready to receive the information. So it's like if they're not ready to receive it, they don't. Tr there's you waste your breath trying to convince them. So I love the breadcrumb technique. You know, it's, it's very, very Socratic. I wonder why he calls it that because is it because you might get like disowned from your family if you try to tell them stuff they don't want to know and that's the <laughs> ronin is a, a samurai with no lord or master maybe maybe right but no the, the yeah was, I, I think it uh it presumes that you oh i think it's the presumption that you've gone rogue that you're not with the mainstream that you're not that you're not a sellout that you're self -own you have self-ownership. And so, so people are going to come to you and be like, so what's your secret, man? How come you don't have to, you know, sell, sell out to the, to the master? And be like, you really want to know? Yeah, I want to know. <laughs> I don't think you want to know. Prove to me that you want to know. You make them jump through a few hoops before you give them the secret to be in a Ronin. I like that. I really like this quote that you gave from... Richard Wagner, that I had never heard before. Luxury is as heartless, inhuman, insatiable, and egoistic as the need which called it forth, but which, with all its heaping up and over, reaching, it never more can still. For this need itself is no natural and therefore satisfiable one, by very reason that, being false, it has no true essential antithesis in which it may be spent, consumed, and satisfied. Man, <laughs> that's a really crunchy one. So I kind of want to just take it a little slower through this. So the luxury is heartless, inhumane, insatiable, and egoistic as the 
need in quotes, which called it fourth. So basically saying that the, the idea that a luxury is needed is itself a, it's a subjective need, not an objective need. Right. And so, or it's the ego decides that it's a need, not the, the heart or the, the human biology itself or something about that biology that needs to be satiated. And so because there's no actual re- biological reality-based imperative for that luxury to be needed, thus it cannot be, there's actually nothing that it can satisfy. So if we're in, it's exactly the feed, the negative feedback loop thing <laughs> again. Right. So if you're in the belief that this is a need, and then you go to consume it, then you will continue to desire more and more of it in an insatiable way because there's nothing that it can, there's nothing that it's actually satisfying. There was nothing for it to satisfy in the first place. Hopefully I've made it make a little bit sense, a little bit of sense, but like that, that totally struck me. I'd never really thought about it before. We're going to repackage it one more time. Yeah. Luxuries that you believe you need cannot satisfy anything that you actually need, but the belief that you need it causes you to insatiably want more of it because you think because the thing it's attempting to satisfy is an illusion that is not being satisfied. Wow. <laughs> you know, this is I see this in the biofield when people want to come for some kind of help with a, an addictive consumption behavior, right? And a lot of times. The interesting thing is a lot of times the answer was sort of just lurking there for a long time. Like, well, your mom smoked while you were (laughs) in the womb or your mom drank while you were in the womb or when you were a little baby or things of that nature. And then there's, and then throughout life, because there is this one, there is this one belief of a need inserted that a bunch of other things got constructed around it as false identity components that feed in to that need and it becomes insatiable. But at the end of the day, it's simply put, you know, addictive consumption behaviors are a underlying satisfaction that is attempting to be satisfied with something that cannot satisfy intrinsically, you know, but that actually can expand and apply to all forms of luxury. It's not that we shouldn't or can't have things that are luxurious or or pleasant or you know feel good that we didn't actually need. The key crux of all this is the belief that it's a need, mm-hmm. belief that you can't do without it. That's what creates this destructive feedback loop. And very, very interesting how much of advertising is based in making you believe that something that's not a need is a need. Yeah. And I think it goes right to the, you know, refer to the title of the book, right? It, it's definitely a big part of making sure you're just too busy with bullshit to have an important, and I want to say the word important, but more like a life where you do satisfy your inner needs. There's a lot of, as you study the history of music composition, when the advent of like the modern thing comes into the West, Dark Ages, Renaissance, there's this concept of, writing music inspired by the unrequitable love of the Virgin Mary. Like, you're not going to get it. But it's a pain and torture that they wrote music to satisfy this insatiable thing. 
and it's not the same idea overall, but there's still, it pervades a lot of art in the history of Europe and other things too. So I think that it's funny how now in the modern times, it's this completely generated from nothing idea. And it, it existed differently back in the day, unrequitable love, in, un, insatiable things. And um, I think that it's, it's meaningful. You know, the book that I got that from, by the way, is pretty potent from this uh, Richard Wagner dude because he had a lot of great ideas, whether you, you, know, you love to hate him, sure. And his music was pretty nutty and the time period was tumultuous. But the, the book is very unique and it is The Artwork of the Future by Wagner. I really think that, I mean, it's not like super short or anything, but it's absolutely worth, it's worth taking snippets just to see where this person's mind was at because it's the time of the German philosophers and other things. So you, you see a, a different level of it and it, it, you can catch a few little interesting quotes. When I had uh, Mario on from Symbolic Studies maybe a year ago, I used a different quote because we were talking about the advent of AI or <laughs> the advent of AI is a long time ago, more like suddenly AI art blew up, you know? So it, it, I, it was a different quote then and the book's chock full of very interesting ideas. Well, the whole Gesamtkunstwerk, total art right. that Wagner had going on is ba- the synthesis of all the different elements of art that come together in a, in the Wagnerian production. Yeah, that, opera, opera. Opera, yeah, yeah. That That is, that ended up being a hugely important key to Hollywood. I think so. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you had yes. to have that. It wasn't just about the actors and their acting. It wasn't just about the writing of words. It wasn't just about the visual artists. It was all those things brought together. I mean, you couldn't have modern video games without Gesamtkunstwerk. That's right. <laughs> I'm not, not a <laughs> German speaker, but that's a very big idea. And sometimes I think one of the reasons for the world wars is just to get people not looking so close at various branches of philosophy that came from Germany that there was like a, it was like a big smear campaign to keep people from looking in there thinking that, Oh, if I, if I read those philosophers, I might end up a anti-Semite or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, that that's a great point. And it's unfortunate. I mean, the, he pioneered some unbelievable concepts. He had the privilege of something that almost no composer ever had. I can think of like Claude Debussy from the French Impressionism. They had their own place where they had an entire orchestra to themselves where they could write a few things out and be like, everyone play this. Let me hear what this sounds like. That's not common. And he created a situation. He created a surround sound idea back then because um, the whole fat lady sings is actually from him. Most opera singers were not humongous ladies wearing these bullhorns, but because he started introducing larger, louder instruments and more of them, you had to be pretty big to belt across and he could be heard. But he had a moat of sorts surrounding the seating and the, the orchestra was placed in it. So the sound actually came up around you. Surround sound, man, back then. Incredible idea. You know, very serious shit. So pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool. The history of that is pretty awesome. Man, that and is cool. You know, uh, in, um, in, in uh, Faust, 
he has a buddy named Wagner. Mm. And uh, when Faust goes on his adventure, he comes back at the end of the story, and Wagner has accomplished the homunculus. And so whenever I hear the word Wagner, yeah, buddy, yes. I think of accomplishments and giving birth to Mm. ideas that give birth to ideas that give birth that become like uh, eggshells or concentric rings or emanations. uh, And that's totally what like Wagner was doing with the music. Yeah, it's a very heavily loaded name. Uh, Highly alchemical in all kinds of uh, mystic potentialities. That's awesome. You're studying him in depth. Yeah, I think his um his history is his history is well looked at already too. So people can find information without digging in the weeds. But if anybody is completely unfamiliar or is curious where they should maybe listen, there is the overture to Tristan und Isolde, Tristan und Tristan and Isolde. I think there was even a movie. I I don't know anything about the movie honestly, but it's he most of the time not him so much because he was on board but a lot of people were using mythology and mythological stories to lament about the current political situations without getting caught right they would just they would take the story and use that it's like oh i was just talking about greek myths but if you listen to that just the overture don't worry about the rest of the piece uh you'll find that he broke a lot of boundaries regarding what you focus on just imagine how many Instruments are in a typical symphony. Even if you have no clue, it's way more than two or three, right? It's not a rock band. There's a lot of instruments. And even in, let's say, okay, there's clarinets, there's five clarinets. It's a lot of instruments, right? He managed to weave a situation, a weave, I didn't even mean to use that, but normally there's a melody to focus on. And it has everything to do with what you were saying before about the high, mid, and low level of things. There's foreground, middle ground, and background musical studying. And the foreground is the, the melody, of course. The melody is the song. It is what you sing. You don't sing the chords, right? You sing the melody. He manages to weave the melody in and out of different instruments where your, your focus keeps changing. And, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a mushroom trip all in itself, trust me. It's an interesting little piece, for sure. Man, <laughs> the whole Faust and Goethe thing is another one that would be fun to just really expand on and weave on i uh i i didn't know this but i just looked in looked it up a little bit like the homunculus part of faust Mm. that the homunculus is initiated into the process of becoming human fully human by the sea god proteus like what really proteus is one of the sons of poseidon He's the old man of the sea buddha is called Mm. the old man po is the name of buddha poseidon i mean there's so much you could weave in with that. Proteus is basically the protagonist. The mm. it's just another version of Phanes, essentially. It would be a great another one that would be great to weave on to demonstrate the whole thing of like yes. there's yes. really just one or two gods here that are they have a bunch of different names and epithets and they're all wrapped together. Uh, I'll continue my weave, but Gabe looks like he's chomping. <laughs> yes, buddy. <laughs> Oh man, Proteus Proteus keeps coming at me, man. He's important. He's in protein. Uh even the word protest. Like think of a of of so he's basically like um he's okay, think of like a big amorphous mass of people moving 
so that they can facilitate change. So even the word protest is whatever this mouth noise that we give mythological value to periodically in different shapes is proteus. Even a protest is proteus. Uh, I think protozoa, a protozoa is proteus. Just that name is uh, is coming at me and proving itself as to be um, something of a thought form. Uh, I'm seeing them as like uh, sea urchins or like oceanic mm -hmm. creatures of the mind. It, uh, and we put these these sounds together uh, to these names. You know, we think that they're names, but I think they're actually thought forms. And Proteus is one of the most... Uh, I think initiatory. It has a lot of value for people who are new to what we do with language. And Proteus would be a real good uh, beginner. We uh, congeal and reform around the same letter sounds. Well, that's a good point. The thought forms thing, they are thought forms. And this one we're talking about right now, Proteus or Protagonos or Phanes or Bacchus or Mithras, depending on what name you give it, it's all the same one, is the first thought. So back to the idea of the layers of the world, you know, your inner world, your social world, and the, na the nature world, this is the first thought of being in which all of those things are uh, in existence, that the very first time any kind of thought was had by anything anywhere where that thought was, I am a being in a world with others. <laughs> that's, that's the, that's Proteus. That's the, the very first thought of, of being, I mean, that's the, it's the initiator of Dasein essentially is the concept. So it would be fun to talk about that, but I wanted to, while we have a, uh, you know, people's attention right now, I actually wanted to expand on something that I think fits this conversation perfectly from the last stream you and I did, Gabe, where we were on the third episode of Loki. And if people haven't caught up on that, I kind of recommend it because it's just getting better and better <laughs> that you may not love, love comic books or comic book movies and TV shows, but it's such an awesome launch pad for us to just talk about the keys of symbolism to the the mystery schools like it's just a lot of fun i think you'll enjoy it even if you never even go watch the show that we're analyzing you'll learn a lot from it and you won't be lost because we kind of guide you through the plot as is helpful to be where we're at but the big to me like like the big existential philosophy question of the last stream we did the third episode how it was all about the uh, the justice or adjustment card and the Libra part of the Zodiac. And Gabe, believe it or not, Venus just entered Libra. Her, you know, where she's exalted. And we happen to be talking all about that character, Venus and Libra, as, like that aspect of the goddess. Fascinatingly enough, it was like, you know, this is, this is part of what I'm talking about, how these three worlds uh, all converge in our really one world. Like our inner world was mirroring what the, the luminaries and the clock were doing at that exact time perfectly, which is awesome. But the big question of 
like the big sort of finality of that conversation that we got to was along the lines of does balance and like justice in terms of the adjustment card is, is there two ways for it to occur? And I was sort of offering the possibility that there's actually like a, a life version of balance and justice. And there's a death version of balance and justice and what the at least surface level. And what I think is being said in the dilemma or Crowleyan sense of the adjustment card and this part of Libra is that again, to that sort of dark, twisted, misunderstood, or in my opinion, inverted Gnosticism path that by bringing all things into balance with their opposite or to applying each thing, it's opposite. You are able to cancel out manifestation and thus snap out of the illusion of Maya or of the world or escape the matrix. That's sort of the Crowleyan idea of the adjustment card that you perfectly balance your masculine and feminine energy or actually how it, you know, how it actually goes down with Hollywood types and what's being pushed in the world right now is you gender bend yourself into oblivion to where you have zero generative potential anymore. And thus life will end because you cannot continue it. And then you are free from the illusion of existence. That's basically the philosophy. And then we also talked about how, the other version of this type of equilibrium, if you will, because that is a form of equilibrium. If you bring things into perfect equilibrium to which they're in full stasis and no longer moving and perfectly balanced against each other, that it, it may be death, but it's also equilibrium in a sense. And then there's the equilibrium of flow and movement and exchange in a in an equal or fair or balanced way. And I use the example of the water cycle on earth for that, how water is evaporated out of the stream and then it moves to the sky and then it rains on a place that needs it. And then it goes into the ground and then it comes up out of a spring somewhere else. And it's in this constant flow and exchange where it's in perfect equilibrium, perfect balance at all times, always finding where it needs to go to continue that balance yet it is life generating life affirming and it's in movement it's not in stasis and that's the other side of equilibrium it's actually more like total freedom rather than total uh annihilation or oblivion <laughs> total potential pure potential is another way of considering it and so why i'm bringing this up and they were like what made me think about this again was the perpetual motion machines in a sense, because when you're being sold that there's no such thing as perpetual motion, it's like, but have you looked around at the water? <laughs> What's the water Seriously. doing? I think it's in perpetual motion, man. And nobody's like putting anything into it other than what's already here. Anyway, you know, the the sun may be a part of that, but it's, it's there, it's happening. And why? So with that, you know, the question maybe that eventually we get to with World War U and philosophy and conspiracy research or spiritual pursuit is the big one. Why is, is, is there such a thing as good and evil? Or if we accept that there is good and evil, why is the evil allowed to exist? How does all this work? And so where I'm landed on this is that the, you know, back to this adjustment card idea that there's the stasis and the death 
possibility of balance and then the flow and the life possibility of balance and equilibrium is that one one side feeds into the other and it's actually creating a perpetual motion machine. So those of us that are maybe aligned with good and life and freedom, we have a tendency to allow others freedom. And that's our, that's how our Eigenwelt interacts with the Mitwelt gives freedom. We, we expect freedom for ourselves. We allow freedom in others, but in the allowance of freedom to others, it generates the possibility that those others can do harm, can do wrong, can do evil, can cause death or can cause themselves to die. That's essentially it. I mean, even it, like if you are really in the state of total freedom in your eigenvelt, then you, they're not going to cause you to die, but (laughs) they might cause themselves to die because you gave them the freedom to do it. You didn't tell them, no, you can't, or you didn't stop them. Right. And in that allowance of evil that the good gives, the good gives the evil, the, the freedom to do it. The evil then does things that cause decay, cause death, cause uh, disharmony, cause disequilibrium, cause imbalance in a sense. And all of that trial and tribulation that is generated by the evil having this freedom given to it by the good actually strengthens the good. It sharpens our claws, our teeth, our wisdom, our our forethought, (laughs) you know, all of the above. We're actually served in all, all of the capacities of expansion that we have, just as a tomato plant needs some wind in order to grow strong and not, you know, falter. All of that is necessary. So the evil in the, it's freedom granted to it by the good strengthens the good and everything that's seemingly decay and evil, just like in winter, the plants that die create room for new and stronger and better plants to come up later all of that seemingly evil and imbalanced or uh, disequilibrium, disharmonic stuff actually leads to better harmony in the end. And so this cycle feeds into itself and it generates the constant expansion, expression, uniqueness, and novelty that we know is the, the ultimate truth of this reality. And what keeps this world interesting and what keeps us invested in being in the world and what gives what ultimately gives us the the purpose in the Dasein. You know what I mean? So that's and I kind of just went on a big tirade there, but like that's why there's the evil in the world. <laughs> I think. That's my take on it. And I see it as a perpetual motion machine and I see it as ultimately actually only good and that that's the true justice or adjustment, you know, wrapped up in the best summary I can give it. Interesting, man. You know, uh, quickly, the quick note I have on it is that they have managed to almost combine both for you to think that you're doing it when you're not. For example, you know, the world's overpopulated. You can't have any more kids. You're causing climate change, but now you'll have tons of freedom for the rest of your life and it's going to be great. So I think that they managed to trick you in that way too. And I hate that so much, but I hate a strong word, but you know, it's, it's one of those things. A lot of people fall for it. (laughs) 
So if you guys, you know, found that rant interesting, go check out our Marvelous Demystifiers episodes. And you'll kind of get walked through an even more interesting step-by-step symbolic analysis of that. Gabe, I feel like you got something to to say in response. Uh, well, Chance, do you want to bring up a, I shared a graphic with you that is a, it's a false rumor. It's a false prophecy. It's bad. It's, it's a bad, bad propaganda, but it is kind of a funny idea. That last graphic I sent after the show, I realized, um, and this could just be a teaser, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't, this is not a reliable news source whatsoever link we didn't make during, while we were uh while we were live uh the female loki she had some writing on her sword and we were fun, having fun speculating that maybe that this sword and this character relates to the adjustment card the adjustment card has a sword in her hands it is the same sword as the ace of swords from the same tarot deck and lo and behold, you look up it close to that Ace of Swords, it has carving on the Ace of Swords, Chance. And so I put the carving from the from the Loki series next to the carving of this uh, tarot card. And I was like, oh, it's a prophecy. It's, it's a runic prophecy foretelling the Palestinian attack on Israel. <laughs> Man. And I'm partially joking, but we did just go into the season of the fall, which is signified by the swords. And so the time of year for the attack to happen, for the for the swinging of the uh, of the imminent uh, prophecy, is really fascinating. Now, uh, so I, I was kind of having fun with the Palestine. It looks like it says dilemma kind of on fun. it. So. That's a theta, eta, lambda. Um, no, theta, epsilon, lambda, eta, mu, alpha, thelema. Okay, that's what it says. All right. Yorgo knows. He's Greek. <laughs> awesome. It looks like, yeah. Awesome. Well done. Wow. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you've sick, decoded man. it. That's great. That's great. So this, uh, this I believe will be uh, in the angelic realms. This will be Michael. Uh, when Michael uh, kicks Lucifer's ass. He ends up showing the scales of justice to Lucifer to be like, "See, you don't have a chance, son," uh, to put him in check. So this, uh, I'm in, on my enneagram work. This is uh, totally Michael, uh, but. One thing that's interesting, Chance, is you know the actual scales of Libra in the heavens. Uneven weights and measures are actually being represented. Uh, so I think that's interesting, but uh, I love that you uh, deciphered that it actually spells out Thelema right there. Wouldn't it be something to find out that the runes from the film have some correspondence to Thelema? Or anything ninety three, for that matter. Well, well, they do that start with a, a T. A fascinating link. I can at least say they start with a T. <laughs> I don't know the runes though. Nice. Yeah, that 
That'd be. I, I asked the audience nice. to figure that one out for us. So yeah, that's a fun, fun teaser. There we go. Guys, you guys, anything else you want to bring up in the topics? Otherwise, uh, uh, I might kind of wind but, us down. Not necessarily. Nothing off the top of my head. We've covered an interesting ground. I will say that much. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, go for it, I Gabe. Mean, if you got more to get off your chest, your we're, we're here for it. Let it out. Let it out. Well, one thing we'll talk about this on the next uh, on the next demystifiers uh, uh, with Loki, but uh, maybe I'll just kind of uh, seed this for anybody who uh, would might be trying to lure into our demystifier uh, uh, adventures. Um, uh, on that graphic, you know, I have Michael the Angel holding the sword. He's about to st- stick the dragon with it and he's got the scales in his hands something that i if uh deciphered on the slick dissident program is that those those three groups in the enneagram they're called the hornavian groups mm-hmm. but the word the hornavian groups rearranges into throne o phantom in a in a very fancy multi-layered slick dissident cipher the word throne and ophanum is inside the word the hornavian groups and so now i'm looking at those personality types as angelic orientations as these three different groups in the enneagram that's very useful the hornavian groups are uh constantly uh serving my perspective to help pick these characters out of stories myths and group dynamics but they are the thrones and so that's really interesting because in uh, the next episode we're going to do uh they go to the time variant uh, associations uh leaders and it's these three guys up on these three thrones and the positioning of the thrones are kind of like an enneagram uh with a geometric shape illuminating them so yeah i'll be I'll, i'll put a graphic together and see uh uh, yeah, see what comes forward because the one guy in the in the throne, he's got the walrus mustache, dude. He looks like Frederick Nietzsche so much; it's crazy. <laughs> the other dang- dangling chat I wanted to bring up is something Rachel in the chat mentioned. Some artist named Christo Xvion. <laughs> Zavion, Zavion. I don't know how you say that. X V I O N. So, yeah, it's definitely like a Christ name nomenclature, Christos and Ixion. But Rachel says he's created over three hundred prediction paintings that have come come true over the last few years. His most famous one went for six hundred million at an auction. <laughs> In other words, money laundering, says Dylan. <laughs> I think that's probably, you know, more likely that we have a Nostradamus on our hands, Ooh. right? That oh. maybe in the club and so allowed to predict certain things, right. fed information, right. and then that creates a demand for the art that can then do a, a nice big money laundering thing. You know, that's how the, the fancy art world typically works. But, but 
check this out. I went to his Instagram and he's published a book on September 19th. Chrysonomics, hmm. the rhombus effect. Hmm. This is the adjustment card, the rhombus. This is in that card. And this is a the second book of the Christonomics series unveils an enthralling journey into the depths of human existence wow. and the enigma of lost knowledge concealed within the mysterious rhombus. Christo delves into the premise that the essence of all religions Buddy. and spiritual okay, teachings so can be traced back to the power source concealed within the rhombus. Huh. That so. is really interesting. So, remember that. Um, there, I remember I found that uh, uh, in the book of Thoth, I found that explanation about um, an, the old abacus, and it had that weird name, and that they even listed the A B A X, the abax, as the oldest form of the abacus. Hmm. Well, that. That that matrix of counting is uh, in the shape, this shape of this rhombus, this diamond. It's also in the shape of the adjustment card. And now I know why the adjustment card is number eight. Because that number eight has to be over the head of the character. Over the, the crown of the character, just like the Lemniscate in the old Rider Waite cards. Well, now the adjustment card has to have that limnascate, that number eight is the number of the card itself. Well, look at this book. It has the word rhombus floating at the pinnacle of the diamond mm -hmm. again. And that is the format of, of that old abacus system that I brought forward. I'll, I'll bring the graphics together. Sometimes I'm so visual I like try to describe it with my words, but I can totally see this uh, cover next to the uh, to the tarot card making perfect sense, like one to one correspondence. What a trip! It's nutty. <laughs> Rachel says she'll send you a copy of this book. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. You DM her on Telegram oh, if you're interested. That's uh, so cool. And if you don't read it, send it to me. I, I kind of want to know the <laughs> mysteries of the rhombus. Okay. All right. <laughs> but it's like a $50 book. So I don't know oh, if I'm shit. that committed. <laughs> Rachel, you're wow. such a great supporter. We love wow. you so much. Thank you. You know, <laughs> uh, this makes me think of uh, like this kind of art laundering. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, one really great example was, do you guys remember the guy who ran out on a sporting event. I think it was a, a football game, a major, like maybe a Super Bowl. And they arrested him because he's running around naked on the field. And then you find out that he actually made a bet for like $100,000 that somebody naked would run out on the field on that game. Do you guys remember that story? No, I did not hear about that, actually. It's, yeah, it's so, kind of nonsense I usually know. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was at a at a, a Super Bowl. Yeah, I think it, it was a Super Bowl that a guy uh, ran out naked Ooh. on the field, got arrested, and then we find out that he uh, he had made a bet, and I think they found out that he had a backup person 
who was going to run out on the field naked if he didn't do it first. <laughs> so he had doubled down his uh, his chances of winning his own bet. Wow. All right, guys. It's been yeah, a good that's night. What you, that's what that kind of Nostradamus influence will get you. Yeah. <laughs> Nostradamus. Well, that's usually the case, though, is that the people who make the prediction, they had inside knowledge, mm-hmm. you know? That's it. So, George, remind them again where they can find you and the, the new book. So, you know, maybe some Christmas presents can be sprinkled out to the to the family members that are ready to maybe not be quite so normie anymore. <laughs> I would be humbled for sure. And you can go right to the website, thirdeyeedify.com. And the merch shop is a clickable link right on the homepage. And it's, it's sitting right there. You can check out all my other stuff while you're at it too. Much appreciated. Love your audience, man. Oh yeah. We, we love you too, man. <laughs> Thank you. It's like dissident on YouTube. You people know it. And We'll be back. We'll be back soon. We got to continue that Loki. Uh, maybe, problem, like I'm thinking, that might be our our vibrant next Wednesday in the time slot. So we will, we definitely want to strike while we're still inspired with that. And good gravy tonight, everybody. Yeah. Crushing. Love you all. Catch you on the next one. Be well. Be good. Good night. Thank you.